2: All
4: right. Hey everybody. We're going to do something different today. So what we have here is we have the guys from BG Calls, well, Buck Gardner Calls, formerly known as Buck Gardner Calls, now BG Calls. Um, They host the BG Waterfowl Podcast. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So I'm also in studio here today with my host, Dr. Mike Brazier. What's up, Chris? How are you? And then I'm going to let you guys go ahead and introduce yourself so you guys can get to know our audience and,
3: and the same yeah so i am the host the primary host of the bg Waterfowl podcast my name is zach hopper and then sometimes joining me over here this is adam
1: davis i am now the owner and operator of buck gardner bg calls uh, as of july 22 cool y'all are here in
4: memphis right
1: we are yeah Just, just across town
4: okay Buck Garner calls or BG calls now, you know, we've had a long relationship with Ducks Unlimited and with you just recently kind of, you know, purchasing the company or taking over, that relationship is still ongoing. And, but what did you, you know, are you familiar with Ducks Unlimited and how we work here and, you know, things like that? Or, you know, when you saw that, you're like, oh, you know, let's maintain this relationship. Like, how did that go when you took over Buck Garner? Sure. So absolutely familiar with Ducks Unlimited. Yeah. Um,
1: I grew up in basically Stuttgart, Arkansas. Uh, started my career at Max Prairie Wings, uh, ended up at Bass Pro and Cabela's. And uh, the previous owners of Buck Gardner called me in the peak of COVID uh, with the bright idea that they were planning to rebuild and kind of revamp the, the brands that they had. And BG Calls w- was one of those. Uh, so I moved back to Memphis in August of twenty. And uh, I've been working with the brand for the last two years, and then, like I previously said, uh, took over in July of this year.
5: August of twenty would have been an interesting time <laughs> yeah. to relocate. I to tell you that
1: it was. Yeah, we, of course, lived in an apartment for about three months trying to find a house and settled in basically Hernando. Uh, This is a rough time to buy
4: a house, honestly. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's right. And, Zach, how about you? Kind of what's your background?
3: Yeah, so I started with BG in the spring of 21, March-ish. This was my first job out of school. I got my marketing degree from Ole Miss and just wanted to work in the outdoor industry, Mm -hmm. and really didn't care how I did it. I uh, started as the shipping manager, and that kind of transformed into the guy that was kind of handling the marketing. He had a lot of other tasks he was doing, so I kind of stepped in and started doing some of that, and that just kind of led one thing to another, and now that's my full-time position as marketing director, and host of the podcast and all that good stuff. Kind of stuck with him now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
4: Now you got him. Well, you guys kind of came up with this idea to do kind of a co-branded joint podcast. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, let's kind of, we'll, I'll let you kind of kick off on, you know, what you guys want to talk about, you know, just especially with, you know, Dr. Brazier here and um, any questions that he may have regarding, you know, you mentioned, you know, avian influenza it's a hot topic, things like that. So, I'll go ahead and let you guys just go ahead and take it from here.
5: Yeah. So, I'll just, I'll add a little bit to that. Uh, you guys, uh, Zach, you reached out to me and... Asked me to come on your podcast to talk about avian influenza, and it feels like I'm talking about that every other day, you know. Now, uh, this time, and so I said, you know, let's think about something different because I was I knew that I was going to have a little bit of a of an update for us, and said let's let's maybe think about a co branded deal where we can all get together, and then that way I don't have to do two separate episodes. That so we're doing of, all this for his convenience. Sort yeah. of some yeah. selfish motives yeah. there, but I'm not ashamed to say that either. <laughs>
1: well, Zach Zach approached me. I don't know, two, three weeks ago and with our relationship of Ducks Unlimited and what we, you know, produce for you guys and uh, he asked about it and I was like, well, this is this is a great opportunity for us and, you know, to come in and visit and see you guys in person.
4: Cool. Yeah. And especially being just down the road, it's convenient. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. So personal experience got me thinking how cool it would be to actually have a biologist doctor from DU come on and kind of tell our listeners anyways about the avian flu uh, because, I mean— I've seen it, I think, Uh, and that's a question I'll get to here in a minute, but uh, just really wanted to know what the basics of it, the updates, we all know kind of what it is, you know, these birds are acting crazy, but just for our listeners' purposes, like, what is it doing to the birds? I would say where did it start, yeah. Yeah, Uh,
5: where does it start? I'm probably not smart enough to be able to tell you that. Um, First thing I'll do is, is you know, to to avoid having to go back through everything that we've discussed on prior episodes I'll I'll remind folks that we have uh, a website, ducks.org slash avian flu, which contains a whole list of frequently asked questions. Some of it is the basics of the avian, of the of the virus itself and the disease that results from it. That website contains four or five podcast episodes now where yeah, we've talked five. with various wildlife disease experts. And, and, uh, and I guess there was a, a separate one that you and I recorded here lately. That's all on there. It's also some Links to external websites for federal agencies: uh, USDA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, CDC, uh, Center for Disease Control, on the human health side of things. So that's a great resource for folks to go look at it uh, to get some of that basic information. Where did it come from? I I guess I'll try to sort of do this briefly. And, and the other caveat that I, the disclaimer that I provide is: I'm not a wildlife disease expert. Uh, what I am able to communicate as a result of the conversations that I've had with wildlife disease experts here over the past six or eight months. Uh, waterfowl populations, wild waterfowl, have, I mean, exist in the presence of various influenza viruses. And in that broad category of viruses, there's two. You'll, you'll hear them referred to as you know two broad types: highly pathogenic avian influenza and low pathogenic avian influenza. The one that we're dealing with right now is a high path avian influenza virus. That high pathogenicity is a reference to how severe uh, the the illness is when commercial chickens are affected. The high pathogenic high pathogenicity has nothing to do necessarily with its effect on wild waterfowl that was just some nomenclature developed for the commercial poultry industry for the longest time we didn't see high path avian influenza in wild waterfowl populations it was restricted to commercial facilities it would it would have a periodic outbreak vi- outbreak a virus would mutate or develop or something they would depopulate quarantine and kind of squash that that virus and this is a worldwide Issue, You know, waterfowl and avian influenza viruses is a worldwide issue. It's not restricted to the to North America. Somewhere along the way, I, 30, 40, within the past 30, 40 years, uh, we began to see sort of increasing frequency of these high-path viruses show up in wild waterfowl populations. Prior to maybe 1992 or the early 2000s, I, f- I forget which, all prior instances of avian influenza detected, with except for maybe one or two in wild waterfowl, were of the low pathogenic type. And this high path deal was restricted largely to commercial facilities. Somewhere along the way, somewhere around the world, that high path high pathogenic virus started to show up more frequently in wild waterfowl populations. Um, so that's th- the the virus that we're currently dealing with was. It's been in Europe for the past couple of years. They've been dealing with it. Yeah, I think the last couple of years is, is fair, maybe stretching into three years now for them. But wildlife disease experts largely suspected it was just a matter of time before it made its way to the to North America. And it did so. Uh, it made its way to North America in December of last year. I think it was detected somewhere in the, in the Canadian uh, eastern Canadian provinces. And it was first detected in the U.S., in January of this year 2022 uh, in South Carolina so that's kind of where it came from I guess if you would if you would say and then it last spring y'all would probably remember seeing a lot of reports of sick and dead snow geese as the birds started migrating back north and the the folks in the that kind of study this stuff suspected it was just a matter of time before we saw this kind of spread across the entire wild waterfowl population which it's it's doing now
1: So, with that being said, correct me if I'm wrong, but as the population increases in wild waterfowl, naturally, if this stays around, we could expect it to get worse or...
5: Uh, I will say, I don't know. That's a question for a virologist um, because you start talking about mutations in the virus. A lot of the stuff that we'd learned about and heard about with the coronavirus and COVID-19 applies to kind of the understanding of this viral epidemiology, virology, et cetera. Um, and just as we heard about mutations and different strains and all that type of stuff, the same applies here. And so, this, this, it's a high path avian influenza subtype. It's called H5N1. The H stands for something, N stands for something. They're kind of proteins on the virus. And then there's all sorts of other kind of genetic information tied to that particular virus where they can identify it. And so these things mutate. So I don't know what it's, I'm not the one who's going to be able to say, what's this going to look like? Uh, I can't even say what it's going to look like next fall. Uh, I, I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows. You could get some wildlife disease experts to probably speculate a bit but there will be continued surveillance monitoring from now at least for the next year probably two years and maybe indefinitely hunters be an important part of that uh, to kind of keep an eye on on what's happening with the virus out there in the in In wild waterfowl. And of course, the big concern is not related to wild waterfowl at this point. It's the commercial poultry industry. It's backyard flocks of birds because the highly pathogenic avian influenza subtypes are lethal, nearly 100% lethal to commercial poultry and backyard flocks of birds.
3: Okay, because that brought me to my next question. Are there birds recovering? Do we know of any waterfowl, wild waterfowl that are actually getting the virus and recovering
5: from it? Yes, there are. And that's something like last week I was at the North American Arctic Goose Conference. And that is one of the things that was discussed in a variety of presentations. What they're starting to do now, and so let me kind of back up here and refer to our experience with COVID. You remember how you can take a rapid test to tell you if you have a live virus? There's also antibody tests to tell you if you'd been exposed to the virus sometime in the past, but you may no longer have a live virus. The same thing applies with, with avian influenza. And the antibody test requires, as I understand it, a blood draw, and there hadn't been there hadn't been a whole lot of testing of that type done. Like let's say earlier in the year, they're starting to do it now. A lot of field work uh, happening out there, where they are capturing live birds, or maybe I don't know if they can get bird get blood from harvested harvested birds. I'm not sure how that works, but they are looking at those blood samples to test for antibodies, and it takes a bit to dial in on this specific virus uh, to, you can first tell if you have, if the bird has influenza, avian influenza antibodies. And then I think there's a couple of other steps to actually dial in on this specific, you know, kind of H5N1, this particular strain, but they can get that. They are testing that in some areas and they are finding some birds that have antibodies to this virus and that basically means that they have been infected and they were able to overcome the virus, the disease, as I understand it. And you have to, I mean, it only makes sense because otherwise it would, uh, it would, it would be, uh, it would be causing severe illness and mortality in, in way more birds than we currently are seeing right now. And, um, and yeah, that, what causes that? What causes some birds to be able to fight it off and others not? Some of that's going to be related to the viral load that they take in. Uh, some of it may be related to other things that I don't know anything about. So, But yes, the answer answers yeah. The other thing that I'll say is that a lot of that surveillance testing that, that I mentioned is sampling hunter-harvested ducks and geese. They're detecting this virus live virus in a lot of ducks. I say a lot of ducks. That I don't know what the prevalence rate is. I've heard 14, 20% and it's going to be probably you're going to have numbers that are lower than that, higher a little bit higher than that. That means at any point in time, the birds that they're that they're testing, they'll find let's say for example 15% prevalence of the live virus. And those would be in otherwise healthy appearing ducks that have been harvested. So, we know it's in ducks. Uh, we're not seeing as much apparent mortality in ducks as we are in in geese, but uh, there's p- some potential bias in that as well.
1: Uh, that's kind of a question I just had vaguely from listening. It Considering you were at an Arctic Goose Conference, was it talked about as to why let's say you hear it from everyone, all the Facebook doctors, that uh, it's impacting the juvenile snows more than other species. Is is that true?
5: The only evidence I have to go on right now is sort of anecdotal observation-wise, because nobody's out there objectively pick, that I know of picking up, maybe they are, and and we'll hear about this, this data sometime down the road, but... Uh, you don't hear of a lot of people out there objectively, rigorously picking up all the birds and looking, sorting them to adults, juveniles, maybe some doing that. So it's just kind of like, what are people observing? And most people are are, are seeing, I don't, I'll throw out some numbers based on just what I've heard from some, some friends, 70 to 80% juveniles. Now I've talked to some people, I mean, that, that basically means 20 to 30% are adults, right? So it is affecting... And killing some percentage of adults, but the majority seem to be juveniles. That's not unexpected because they're the ones with the more naive, inexperienced immune system. Um, I'm trying to remember what, uh, like the, some of the results that I saw last week, they pulled blood from young birds, from hatchier birds, as well as adult birds. And the percentage of birds to, to look for antibodies, just for the avian, a, any type of avian influenza virus, the percentage of juvenile birds in this particular study that had any evidence of avian influenza antibodies was zero. Like, so they they have no antibodies. And so for any type of avian influenza virus in that particular little sample, whereas when they looked at the adult birds, I don't remember what the number was, but it certainly wasn't zero. It could have been 40 to 70%. I, I, I don't know what that number was. But point was, in fact, those juvenile birds had no antibodies for avian flu. And so, if that's the case, yeah, you would you would expect them to be the ones most affected. And I'm sure you guys are out there and seeing that
4: same thing. I'm the same way. I mean, I, I have a place over in Arkansas where we hunt and it's a lot of rice fields. And historically, you'd always see that. I mean, a big flock, 10 15,000 snows get out of a field. There's always a couple dead floating out there. And that could be anything. And that's another reminder that Mike does a really good job about you know telling people is that it, it, what you're seeing may not be avian flu it could be avian cholera you know there's any number of uh, diseases
5: aspergillosis or something you know you just wanted to say a big word Uh, well I did it at (laughs) risk because I might have mispronounced it but anyway
4: (laughs) but yeah I mean like I'm seeing the same thing that you know I think everyone else is where you know you look across the field instead of there being two or three now there's 30 Yeah, you know in different stages of decomposition so it's like you know this one you know died two weeks ago and this one probably a week ago but majority of them are juveniles you know I've, I've seen a couple adults here and there but
1: with with growing up around that Stuttgart-Dewitt area mm-hmm. naturally a lot of my friends and they are in the guiding or that's what they do for a living yeah and so naturally just because what I do in the industry, they think I should know. And I'm like, guys, I I can't answer that. I just know they're dead and I know they're in the fields. And yeah, yeah. I think it's just a concern for those guide services. I mean, it's their livelihood and they're asking a lot of questions.
5: I have talked with a couple of people here lately who shared with me, they were kind of on the on the the front line or the the first outbreak that we heard of uh, one one is in Washington and one is is in Arkansas and I've checked in with them here recently to find out what they're seeing on their property are they still seeing the same number of new dead or sick birds on their property every week and the answer is that it appears that the virus the the illness is lessening the the Observations of the of sick or dead birds is lessening, is decreasing on their properties, and that's what you would hope would would be the case. It would be very concerning if we saw this if we saw this persist at the same level and begin to burn through the the adults, you know, along with all the juveniles. Right now, if it if it is in fact, which I think it is affecting the juveniles more so than the adults, you would expect um, at some point the majority of those juveniles to um to kind of fall ill die some of them if they get only a small viral load some of those juveniles may be in good enough shape to fight it off that's what we would expect to happen um same with the with the adults i mean it's it's crazy to think that we are we are digging we are all so interested in the the virology, the viral epidemiology. I don't know if I use those words correctly or not. But I'll take a take a chance there. That we're all interested in that level of detail on, on this particular topic. But I, I mean, I think it's cool. It's a chance for us to, to help educate and communicate uh, various pieces of guidance to people. Let's not freak out about this. Let's understand the risk to us as humans, to dogs. Uh, let's understand whether it's going to have a detrimental long-term effect on the population of, of waterfowl, which no one really thinks that it is at this stage. Might be a few populations that are a little more susceptible, a little more concerning, but by and large, no one is expecting this to to, to have you know severe long-term uh, effects on, on wild waterfowl populations as I understand it right now. And any and every bit of this is subject to change as new information comes in. I mean, nature's not stagnant. The, the virus is not stagnant. It's there's it's going to be mutating, and and one thing that I'll mention here, I don't think I've have ever remembered to say it on any previous episode. That's why it's really important to to reduce the opportunity for this virus to jump to an, a different type of animal. You know, we talk about not letting your dog chew on dead. Dead birds, not letting your dog chew on carcasses of even healthy, apparently healthy birds. Because I just told you that some percentage of the ducks that are harvested out there have live virus in them. Viral concentrations are highest in the organs and the brain. Don't let your dog chew on that and eat all that. Um, the other thing that, I've, that I was... The kind of guidance that I received from USDA APHIS, and i had never even imagined this, and, uh, but it's, it's an important point, I guess, to make. A- apparently, somewhere, somebody uh, has the idea of feeding carcasses, maybe of harvested birds, to, to pigs. I've never never heard of that, but apparently it happens to some degree. And USDA APHIS is like, we really don't need to be doing that because if you're introducing that virus into another organism, you're giving it the chance to mutate and develop the ability to infect that 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 animal. The same as we heard with with the coronavirus and all the speculation about it jumping from one species to the next. Same reason why we we need to be very careful against Doing anything that would encourage that to happen, you know. So, if you, you know, yeah. And I
4: think one one thing to point two things real quick that I, I'll point out. You know, the first thing is that we have really kind of positioned Ducks Unlimited. We're we we don't want people to think that we are the authority. You know, the, this virology. You know, and and so what we're doing and what Mike is even doing here is he's relaying this information from. Specialists in the field that he either Talks to at this conference or he calls them You know he's constantly dealing with questions On this Um, but also letting The USDA is setting these You know answering these really the Frequently asked questions that we have on the website and Things like that I mean these are directives from the USDA state agencies State agencies yeah I mean Arkansas Game and Fish is really involved with this the Commission Um, so You know we don't want people we don't want your audience To think that that Ducks Unlimited is the Authority on this more or less we just communicating the messages that we have the opportunity to get. The other thing, and you didn't really mention it, but that decrease in the number of birds, and this is just me kind of, you know, being the armchair biologist. That, Go for it. Yeah. It but you know, it is something that you mentioned um, that there's so many different factors in the in this. And we saw a, a huge number of these early in the season, you know. When the season, especially in Arkansas, just opened up, um, there was a bunch of dead birds after that first weekend, and people are really talking about it. But also, we had a really strong cold front there, and it forced a lot of these, especially snow geese who were holed up in South Dakota and northeast Missouri, and and it forced them on a pretty – Pretty good flight To get down to Arkansas So those birds were stressed By this cold weather And that's another thing That he had kind of pointed out For people to keep in mind That, you know There's so many other factors involved You know, if these geese get it And they're in a nice Comfortable environment You know, they can probably Just like us when we're sick You know, you don't want to have to go Shovel white rock When you got the flu You know, so You know, and that's what these geese ended up doing. So now we're going to talk about this, you know, kind of, we've got a big forecast coming up as we head into Christmas and oh, I know duck hunters are just like, oh my gosh, here we, especially, let's say, let's rephrase that, duck hunters in the South because it's, you know, it's going to get serious cold here and uh, people are kind of fired up. So it would be interesting to come out of that looking if there is like the, you know, the people that you have talked to that the number of birds that he's seeing it's gone down well if it goes back up it could be due to factors like that where this birds are just getting stressed out
5: yeah, yeah. It, it could be it that'll be an interesting thing to to pay attention to the other thing i take away from, from that is that you were actually paying attention that was man I, I didn't know that i appreciate <laughs> that's good
4: <laughs> yep yeah, yeah i was that time this is kind of important there's a lot of people
3: asking questions so i'll listen to you on that one
4: yeah so, one more thing
3: i just Curiosity, two experiences happened to me last weekend in Arkansas. I was on the river in my boat and I look up and there's a snow goose on the river, way out of its element, circling above my head, acting really strange. Could have shot it out of the back of the boat and it followed me. You know, like I've never ever heard of that happening. I mean, is that something early onset avian flu? Do they act really strange but still are able to do normal goose things? Or waterfowl things in general. I mean, is that yeah,
5: yeah? That is that is widely believed to be an uh, one of the kind of signature symptoms of a bird that may be early in, in an infection, still able to to do things to, to fly, but it's starting to to get some kind of neurological issues, or it's it's starting to, to feel the effects of that. And you know whether whether a bird can become symptomatic and recover, I. I don't know, I would imagine maybe, I did hear that there's a certain point at which there's certain symptoms that once they start kind of developing some head twitches and uh, it's, they're on the edge of of not being able to to recover. But yeah, there's a lot of reports of things like what you described. It could be, you know, to, uh, again, to be certain, you'd have to get that bird and, and test it, but that seems to be a a common observation in areas with documented AI.
4: Yeah, and I've I've heard several different stories like that um, from Southeast Missouri all the way to South Dakota, you know, Kentucky, these guys, you know, and and I've even seen on opening weekend, like we had a flock of like six snow geese and they're flying over our decoys, like too high to even, you know, shoot at or anything. We're We're not even paying attention to them, really. And like one just just literally like kamikaze crashed into the decoys and it was just like you don't see that very often you know nobody's shooting at it. it's just but then it's trying to get up and it would jump and hop and you know but it it just kept going back down so i think i think a lot of hunters are seeing that so that's probably a good point to make to kind of keep your eye out for that uh before we move on to some of the other hunting and, and kind of migration update here uh let's take a quick break and we'll come right back All right, everybody, we're back with the BG Waterfowl Podcast, guys. Here in the Ducks Unlimited Studio, um, you know, I think we just ran through a lot of avian influenza stuff. Can you know kind of revise some things from from Mike's past shows, but also brought some new updates here. Uh, you guys had some great questions about that, um, but as we move on, you know, I'll let you guys kind of take the lead here on this too. You know, what other topics did you? I know you wanted to talk about some migration stuff and even mm-hmm. some kind of regional
3: local things. Yeah, so we kind of mentioned it right before we took the break. Uh, the cold weather coming into the south. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the last thing I saw a lot of ducks hold up uh, north Missouri. Uh, so, any updates on what we're looking uh, the past couple weeks? You know, into the next couple weeks. Uh, from you guys, that you have any insight on?
5: Do you want to take that? one? you got any reports from yeah, Missouri? Yeah, I mean, area? we
4: did a uh, we did a north northeast Missouri or northwest Missouri migration alert last week that we posted. Um, one of our great freelancers, who also joins the podcast pretty regularly, John Pullman, um, he just basically collected the information from all of the state managed. Refuge and hunting areas, their conservation areas up there. I mean, they're still holding a ton of birds. You know, the reality is that area always does. I mean, this is not a surprise. Um, I I don't even remember these exact specific numbers, but what is it? Fountain Grove up there, Grove. Last Swan I... Lakes up yeah. there. Um, you know that that Golden Triangle that they refer to. Um, they have a lot of ducks and a lot of mallards. You know, the mallard numbers are what really jump out. Um, the good news on that is like even and even on my phone my weather app like i have chillicoth missouri as one of the cities that i keep because i want i basically have saskatoon you know pierre south dakota or actually it's Dell rapids because that's where john is from um and then i go to chillicoth and then i go to st louis missouri and like that's those are the st- cities like if i look i'm like oh man like Northern Missouri's getting cold, but the next thing I'm looking at is, is St. Louis going to get cold? Because it doesn't matter if they don't get past the confluence. You know, it's like they could all, I don't know, three or four years ago, they sat right there at the confluence and just a little further south in the Mississippi River. when Every it was
5: mallard out. in North America right <laughs> there at the confluence.
4: You, you would they think so. You would think so from some of the comments. <laughs> but, no, it's just, I mean, there was just a ton of birds that were holed up. And the reality is in that situation, Guys couldn't hunt them. They were in some areas that were literally, you know, so hard to get to. So, I'm sure there were some river dudes out there really getting after them, but most people weren't because the river was so high. So, think about what ducks had. They had a safe place to sit, and that means everything. Um, We have hunting pressure conversations all the time. Um, What I'm seeing from this weather system that's coming in here, you know, within next week, right before Christmas and through Christmas, every single one of my destinations is going to get cold. You know, it's Stuttgart is going to be in the teens, you know I haven't seen a whole lot lower than that Um, So that's going to be an interesting, you know Even down all the way to northern Louisiana Into southern Louisiana I mean, they're going to be cold, you know I think I read something the other day Because I am kind of a weather junkie But they were predicting snowfall Off the coast of Louisiana Like out in the Gulf Surely that's not right (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what someone says This is crazy I mean, that, that's, okay. I've actually hunted down there when the, the ponds froze It
5: can snow yeah. in Louisiana I, I know. It can Coastal yeah. Louisiana, I know
4: Yeah, so, you know, taking that into account And, and you know, we're providing a very one-sided view of, like, the mag- migration here This is really, like, Mississippi Flyway, Central Flyway type things um, But, you know That same weather system, uh, they have weather systems that are going to be heating up in the Pacific Northwest as well, which will get things moving. Um, Some of my migration editors that supply these, they're a little fired up because – it, the past few years in December, we've had an issue where it's like, it's the same report over and over again, you know, stale ducks, you know, no weather, cloudy, yada, yada. And so like they're fired up just to have a change, you know, uh, one of our great podcast and ducks.org contributors, Jay Anglin, he comes on and provides an update for the um, the Great Lakes region. And he's, I know he's got his eye on this and it's going to be big. Uh, especially for those, I think they're closed up there right now, Um, but southern Indiana, southern Illinois, um, those areas are going to be, you know, one, they're going to pick up a bunch of ducks, but two, they're also going to be impacted, I mean, some of those guys are going to be ice fishing, potentially. So, (laughs) if they're ice fishing,
3: we're in business down here. I mean, like you said, at least my recent memory, the last, Two, three, four years. December has just been, yeah, like horrible. Christmas was mm. short sleeves. Yeah, and the week yeah. after, I mean, we were hunting, and I mean, we were rolling up our sleeves. Yeah, um, I played so, golf the entire Christmas break last year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm under the firm belief that we go through cyclical weather patterns in spurts of you know five to eight years, and I think we go through good hunting five to eight years. You know, it gets good and it gets bad. Yeah, I, I think you know overall. I mean, especially in the South, we've had a, a rough go of it the last couple of years. I mean, you look at harvest numbers; it's not what it was ten years ago. So, I believe that maybe we're actually starting to get back on a normal trend as far as weather down here. Now, weather in the whole you know North America, I don't, I don't know, but I know at least for now, I can't remember the last time it was you know. So cold you couldn't sit on sit outside on Christmas because I mean, yeah. we sit on the front porch and eat Christmas dinner. Yeah,
4: that's I mean. interesting you said because I had Luke Naylor on last year and we were kind of talking. Luke Naylor is now the he's was, the chief. Yeah, the chief of uh, chief of wildlife. wildlife for Arkansas Game and Fish Commission and chief Luke and he joins us on the on the show pretty regularly to provide updates and uh, um, you know he mentioned that the reality last year is it wasn't any warmer in Arkansas than it ever had been. It was almost like an average year. You know, that's on as far as a data set that is, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, but it wasn't really any warmer. It wasn't really any colder. It was just, like, perfectly average. And he, and he mentioned that the issue was is it was just a little warmer in, like, Nebraska, you know. So, that's where you run the issue of, you know, holding ducks up or whatever, you know, where where people aren't seeing the same. Like you said, the numbers are down a little bit. Um, and if I, remember,
5: if I remember correctly, last December, we didn't even have any any weather period,
3: we, yeah, not a whole lot of issue. rain yeah, to put no. new
5: habitat on the landscape, What even any of that, mm-hmm. uh, let alone, you know, any kind yeah. of cold temperatures. So I, we're getting a little bit of both uh, now. We've had some, some more rain, new rain here in the lower Mississippi Valley. And that's a good thing. West coast folks, not to leave them out. They've had a good run of, of, uh, rain into the central Valley of California and some of the other areas, um, and then I talked to Mike Schumer recently, in up in uh, New York, and it's been a it's been a, a, a you know pretty I don't know what did he say. It's been warm. It's been kind of a so so year for them, but they're also looking forward to some of this weather that may uh, may move some birds for the East Coasters. Yeah, I've got a a migration alert that
4: went out today from Kansas, um, and I've got a California one that went out about 15 minutes ago. And that's, you know, those guys started out so concerned with water and then they got water. And now, you know, what they the way that they some of the really good hunting out there in the Central Valley, California is on the National Wildlife Refuges. What is it? Delavan, Calusa, Sac Valley. And a lot of those properties, and don't quote me on exactly which ones cuz I don't exactly know, but you know, they weren't pumping water until it got to like a 50% you know, availability type thing. And most of them hit that number. And so they ended up getting, you know, 50% water in the hunting just in the last few days, like the December 10th, it just took off. Like the guys out there just like, it went from, you know, not very good to most of these public areas are averaging like three, four, sometimes five birds per gun, which is you're not gonna have a whole lot of public areas in the country that average that. I mean, these are top tier, probably some of the best public hunting in the country. Um, and so they're, they're all happy right now. You know what, what happens in the next few weeks? I know they're going to get some more weather. There's a couple systems out there. Um, But they have such a long season. They have a little bit more of an ebb and flow, and I think those guys are a lot more patient because of that. Like here, Mississippi Flyway, where we got that 60 days. I mean, those guys are dealing with 107 days. So when they're kicking their season off in early October – Eh, you know, some of them are just like, ah, we'll wait till we get... You know, they're not as fired up. Not that they're not fired up about it, but they're not... They know that they have the time to wait, and I think that makes a difference. Um, the report from Kansas today was brutal. Um, we did a show with the guys from... was it? Uh, Kansas and yeah. Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. Um, they just have been dry. And they just... They've got some water, but it's not enough to make any difference up there. And they- now the concern is they don't have any water. Maybe they got a little bit of rain. Some of these guys have like an inch two, maybe three inches of water yeah, and like a moist freeze, soil like unit. Like block of ice. Yeah. Gone. yeah. I mean, with this weather system, it's gone, which is good news for guys further down the flyway. I mean, that's just kind of the give and take of, of how it works out. Um, but the Northeast, that's kind of my last one that I had. Um, like you said, they were warm. Everyone's bummed out. Now they've gotten some, they got the water that they needed. Uh, some of the you know, north-southern part of, you know, Chesapeake Bay, I would say, not southern part, but that area got some water from that hurricane, so a lot of their habitat improved. They had some good wood duck hunts early. Transitioning now, you know, they are got their eyes north watching this big storm system. They're going to get... Those guys are going to start picking up Canada's. You know, they're going to – some of the bigger, hardier ducks are going to start moving in. The sea duck hunters are getting after it. I mean, they've got some of the best hunting they've had in a while. Um, and then all of those kind of coastal birds that will shift out further au- – or. I should say, inland coastal birds, uh, a lot of that water is going to freeze up. You know, your Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, there's some really good areas out there that that'll freeze and that'll push those birds south and even out further on the coast so the coastal guys will be in business. Um, So, if we
1: we jump back to the Mississippi Flyway, kind of where you were talking about that northwest region of Missouri. mm -hmm. So, what is it about the last, I would say, five years just the number i know historically that's a great area no matter what but it seems social media and just the chatter of that region and the number of ducks it's holding on average every year it it, is it just is it just because i mean is is it more is it more planning from the from the missouri conservation department uh well what's your opinion
5: the the I won't offer my opinion as a scientist. That would <laughs> at least not on a topic like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a live check here of my well, the weather app. A little bit of a distraction here for Columbia, Missouri. Speaking of Missouri, uh, Tuesday the twenty second. Low temperature of zero. Uh, high temperature of twelve. That's going to make some ice. Um, so no, but so in terms of your question there, five last five years or so. I mean, you you I think that. What I would key in on there is, as you said, it seems like. I certainly wouldn't base my understanding of waterfowl distributions on social media and photos and things of that nature. I mean, I I, I know... Um, people will have stories from one location or the other saying it's been the best five years they've ever had. You can go to places in the southern portions of the flyway and they will tell you it's been the worst five years of, of their lifetime. And I'm not going to tell those people that either of them are wrong. What I what I can say is that the, the question about why some places are, are holding mo- more birds, I use air quotes there, or whether they've had more successful hunts, um, it's going to vary at different scales. This is a question that the the scientific community is looking into with the data that we have available. I'm involved in a study with some, with some collaborating partners trying to look at band recovery data for mallards over the past 40 or so years to see if there is, in fact, a change in the recovery distribution of banded mallards in the Mississippi and Central Flyways. You know, So from a scientific standpoint, that's the first thing I, I look for after you establish. The question is, what data do we have available to actually evaluate that question from an objective standpoint. And that's obviously a very frustrating thing for the average hunter to say. I don't, I don't care about your objective data. I'm telling you what I've seen. I understand that. Um, but it's it's a number, if you want to look back over the past five years, I think it would be very difficult to find something more influential than let's say large scale weather patterns, the timing of those weather patterns. You can look at average temperatures over the course of a year, as Luke did, and 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 I think that was the the course of a month, and you'll find no change. What we all are increasingly, I guess we've known it, and now we're getting more data to support it, is that what moves birds, what causes birds to go in different locations at different times is not a single factor Event or single factor kind of equation, it's it's weather. Both in, and and weather encompasses a lot of different things. It's not just temperature. It's the length of time that temperature stays below a certain threshold. It's snow cover. It's uh, precipitation. How things are moving around. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to go through each of the last five years and explain away uh, any type of, of – to explain anything that, that you've described there. But my recollection is that, in fact, we have had some very frustrating years in terms of of weather conditions, environmental conditions that would have been beneficial to hunters at southern ends of of the flyway. I think this year is a good contrast to that because what happened in early November, Veterans Day weekend – we got cold weather what also happened we had dry conditions in the mississippi alluvial valley birds still migrate where they migrate when they migrate and how far they migrate is dictated by a whole host of factors and those factors change through time they always have and they always will some of them we we quote control as 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 landowners, as public area managers, as agricultural producers, you know we're kind of responsible for some of those things that are happening out there on the landscape. There are other things we can't necessarily control those larger environmental drivers like um, precipitation, snowfall, temperature and then of course you look in some areas where we've where we've observed um, massive amounts of habitat loss. other areas in Missouri give them credit they have done a tremendous, job in managing, and providing high quality habitat for migrating birds. They absolutely have done that. Other states have done that as well. You can look throughout Arkansas and portions of the Mississippi Delta that have done that too. And so it's not just that. It's a, it's a litany of, of factors. Um, so that was kind of a, um, uh, what's it? Um, What's the word when they get up there and just talk oh, and talk? Oh, and- filibuster. Filibuster. <laughs> I was like, that's a, I was like a filibuster. I was going to say, yeah, maybe it
4: is a filibuster. Yeah. I wasn't taking it as yeah. that, but no,
5: yeah. yeah, maybe that was kind of a. I don't want that to sound like too much of a filibuster, but I guess it is just a. No one can tell you exactly what would have happened the last five years and what single agent was responsible for that? Because there wasn't a single agent responsible for that.
4: And I think it's interesting, you know, I, I hear a lot of, you know, the same things that you guys are hearing that, you know, um, there's no ducks in the South anymore. You know, hunters are not seeing the birds. Yeah, you, you know, that's, that's fine. I'm from Indiana, so I, I, there's more ducks down here than there ever was in <laughs> Indiana, so I think it's awesome. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the, the actual data sets, because um, we, the midwinter surveys, Arkansas does a really good job with it. Um, Mississippi also does. Well, there's several people in the building from Mississippi, and, I mean, I want to say it was, gosh, I don't, 2017, 2018, maybe. might have been 2018. Um, if you look at the midwinter surveys, there was more mallards in the state of Mississippi than there was ever, But that was at the time of the survey. But if you go over to Arkansas, Arkansas's numbers were 60% down. You know, and maybe don't quote me on exactly 60. But, you know, everyone's like, oh, there's no ducks in the south. Well, just so happens that, you know, they had a weather system and those ducks are moving. And that's one thing that we talk about on this show a lot. Here one day gone the next. And I get phone calls in my office. The guy say, I haven't seen, you know, a duck in front of my blind. There's no ducks in the state of Arkansas. I haven't seen a duck in front of our blind in two days. There's no ducks well, man, you're looking at, like, maybe you can see three, four miles in this, you know, general right outside of your pit blind. That's what you're looking at. If you were to drive a hundred miles, you know, maybe they're all there, you know, because of, for some reason, you know? So, I mean, I think the data is showing that, yeah, there's probably not as many ducks in, there has not been as many ducks. I mean, Luke Naylor, you know, they're not, they're going to say that. I mean, the data shows it, but there are little caveats in there that you can find. So
5: the other thing that I would say here over the past, four or five years, and maybe this is where I should have started. And it may be 2016, 2017 when we started to see a decline in the Continental breeding population, the, the traditional survey area, uh, mid continent breeding population size. I mean, that, that matters. Last year was the perfect example of that, what the population size is, and then what production is during a given summer. Last year was bone dry in the prairies for all practical purposes. Hardly any, there very few juvenile birds harvested last year. That was the word that we heard from so many people. Just the opposite this year. Prairies got wet. The birds that did return produced produced ducklings, made baby ducks, and we see a lot of those coming south now and are finding their way in, into hunter bags. I've been I've been the beneficiary of of some of that. The big one that I wanted to add was the, the breeding population really mattering. Hopefully, we'll get some several successive years of good conditions in the prairies, and we can really start to build on the year we have right here. The other thing that I'll kind of just, uh, a tease of what we're starting to learn from that analysis of band recovery data that I mentioned, one of the things that you hear a lot of is, oh, the migration is shifting west. You've probably heard that, right? Right there's no indication in any of the data sets that we've looked at and that uh, thus far some of which are midwinter survey based which are of limited utility but even kind of band recovery data sets don't show a shift in recoveries west if you know if anything it's a little bit the other other way so you, you as a, as a scientist when trying to speak to these questions of great importance you try to make sure you're doing so with 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 good data. And sometimes we lack good data from from all these different scales. You know, that's what Chris was talking about at that three, you can only see three miles or something. We don't have the data to answer questions at all those different scales. So I'm going
1: to throw a question at you. Yep. Just talking about the band recovery project, just off the wall, is there a specific state that you would say recovers more bands?
5: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, what I can tell you is that Arkansas... Generally speaking, I, I'll, I'll kind of hedge a little bit because I don't want to necessarily be wrong and I don't have the actual uh, the actual data committed to memory, but Arkansas, that area, continues to be the epicenter of mallard harvest in the Mississippi and Central Flyway. There was a study in the early 2000s that showed that. Even at that time, there was an analysis done to see if there had been a shift in the distribution of mallard harvest. That study found no shift even at that time. Um, this, this study, I'm not... I'm not again committed enough in terms of memory to 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 speak about any type of shift north or south, um, but there's no indication of a of a shift west. I, I do I do know that based on those band band recovery data, and then the majority of that harvest still occurs in in Arkansas, southern Missouri, that area there. Yeah, we did a podcast
4: a couple of years ago with our former chief scientist. Um, and it was basically like our waterfowl migrations changing. And like, this is some of the same conversations that, you know, and he broke it down into like the seven or eight different categories of how they're looking at it. And it was everything from, you know, local weather, you know, global weather, you know, precipitation, yeah. hunting pressure was yep. a big thing. You know, like I mentioned earlier that, you know, those ducks that found their way down to, you know, somewhere along the Mississippi River and they didn't want to go anywhere or they didn't have to go anywhere, you know, that can play a major factor. And I think if you look at it from a continental perspective or from a duck's perspective, even, um, it's interesting to see, you know, and there's da- there's other data out there, you know, which is really cool. I mean, I tell people all the time, like, oh, you know, Arkansas was, you know, fifth or sixth in Mallard Harvest a few years ago, whatever. And they're like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service puts out a report, you know, every year that is available to the public and guys just don't look at it, you know, and they're like, you know, where would you go hunting if you, you know, had anywhere to go? And I'm like, Washington State, the numbers are ridiculous. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they are hammering widgeon up there, you know, it's like, like, so it's like the numbers are available for people to look
5: at. You know how many, you know, you know how many nasty rams you're going to get?
2: That's, California. there's no one else, yeah,
4: <laughs> they're all right. They got to love ducks. They do well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, you you know, the, with the the numbers are available to look and then to compare. And you're right. I mean, it, it does show like a dip in numbers of mallards. Um, overall, duck harvest doesn't dip near as much. You Know maybe guys are just more willing to shoot shovelers these days, who knows? But uh, that's the Mississippi know, mallard, right? Yeah,
3: absolutely. But you know, you you can go in and find this information. Yeah, I that, mean, y'all put out a great, I mean, every year that's the mm-hmm. biggest thing that goes around is the Ducks Unlimited uh, duck number, you know, right at awesome. the beginning of the yep. beginning of the year, and you see the you know, blue wing, teal, pintail, I mean, yeah, you know, or green wing, yep. whatever it was that are just. I
5: mean, blue wings I, were up this year. Yeah. Yeah, I
3: wouldn't say skyrocketing, but they're definitely you know more yeah. than their average. Yeah, you know, going up. Whereas the mallard is not. Yeah,
5: yeah, this year's. That's right. This was the breeding population survey of this year. Yeah, I think the mallard would have. Sh- I think it was around twenty four percent decline or something like that mm-hmm. from last year. But again, that was remember that was the holdover from what yeah. was left. after Yeah, everybody the drought. was freaking yada, out, and I was like, wait, right. now now, now <laughs> look, right. this a lot is, of young mallards in the population right. this fall.
3: Yeah. yeah, so next year be very interesting to see that report again um but like i said the other duck numbers going up yeah um substantially
1: so yeah there's always that discussion of the number of mallards killed in arkansas and the 60-day season versus california's 105 or 107 whatever it is, yeah somewhere around there don't know and (laughs) you They, they always want to have the conversation of, well, why can't Arkansas have a 100-day season? And I'm like, do you realize the number of hunters and the number of birds yeah. that get would get bagged in 100 days in Arkansas? Yeah. I, I mean, they, they've
4: never put that many rednecks in a 100-day duck season. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, that's all based on harvest regulations of yeah. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, yeah, there's you know. there's
5: a long history in that. I yep. think we had an episode in our harvest management series where we, we tried to touch on that a little bit, but uh, it, yeah, it's an entire discussion in itself. But you're right. Part of it does relate to the relative number of hunters and the likely take that they're going to And they, that's, that's a
1: conversation you have with people and your average hunter, like you said, the data's there. They <laughs> just don't look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when you get in those conversations and you try to make them understand, look... You, you couldn't take the number of hunters that are in Arkansas for 100 days. It, yeah. it just it wouldn't make yeah, sense right. from, a, from a bag standpoint. Yeah, and
4: there's no easy way to explain any of that. I mean, yeah. I did it, I think I've said it on here before, you know, a couple of years ago, and people were like, there's no ducks, you know, around here in the south. Why? And this and that, and people are arguing over what reason. I'm like, it's 55 degrees in Nebraska on January 10th. That's why bingo, no bugs.
5: Yeah. you know. It's like yeah. I'm no, I, I'm no scientist, yeah. and most of the times <laughs> when we're talking about this, people are imagining mallards. Mallards yeah. are the most hardy, cold hardy species there there are some other species that are starting to show some interesting things and at least kind of based on what uh, different observations and when people think about this issue and mostly especially in the mid latitudes mostly thinking of mallards and yeah they're the ones that are going to be and and Mike Schumer has done the empirical work and shown they they are those mallards and black ducks are the most cold tolerant and weather tolerant and they are going to they're they're under under no obligation to migrate any farther south than they have to physiologically biologically
1: yep and that and that goes to every january there's always pictures that come out of the mississippi river around st louis and it's just thousands and mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of greenheads yeah.
5: yeah yeah researchers uh, brad cohen and his his students uh, here at tennessee tech i saw them post a uh, uh, with a post, maybe it was earlier this week. They have a radio-marked mallard that's in like what a downtown Calgary or something like that. You know, these out. birds find mm-hmm. these places that stay thawed throughout the the brutal cold winters of those northern latitudes, and as long as they can find a place to to get some food, more power to them. You know, not a bad thing if you can get it.
4: Yeah, so I think we'll go ahead and wrap this up, guys. Do you guys have any other questions or anything about avian flu? Or I have one question. To get you before you guys get out. What's coming new from Buck Garner or BG calls
1: from from a brand standpoint? We for the last two years have kind of gone through this, not necessarily rebrand, uh, but more focused on I guess being competitive with a lot of the higher end brands. So naturally, we're still going to take care of our core customer, which has always been that polycarbonate lower price point. We're still going to continue to make high quality calls for Ducks Unlimited and, and work with that partnership. But from our BG brand standpoint, you're gonna start seeing a lot more uh, new product releases, uh, more modern uh, apparel, hats, t-shirts. You're gonna see more hoodies uh, and you're definitely gonna see some calls. Like we've got, I don't even, I can't count how many new calls we technically have in line. To be released, and we have to decide how we want to release it and when we want to release it.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a very exciting time because when I first came in, you know, we didn't even offer the kind of calls that I used, Mm -hmm. and so having to adapt to that, and now we're, you know, got our feet under us and making these strides and getting back to where the brand should be. It's like I said, it's just a very exciting time, and we've got a lot of stuff to to put out there and to show people that this it and your. Pat Paul's Buck Gardner calls anymore. Yeah, cool. Yeah, with, with
1: my background from retail, I for basically since 2008, I've studied retail. I mean, that's yeah. been my life. So knowing what sells and, and how to approach that, I think for us going forward is going to be huge.
4: Cool. Well, that's exciting. Are you guys doing manufacturing here in Memphis or?
1: So we're working with I would say one of the best CNC machinists in in the game call production business and he's actually out of Texas. Okay. Um, and that's simply because of his quality of work. Yeah. Um we're we're going to go all in. It's it's going to be either the best or we're not going to do it. Good deal.
4: Cool. Awesome, man. This has been a great conversation. Glad we got to team up on this. Uh, hopefully answered a few questions, or Mike did, I yep. guess. Yeah, yeah you, exactly. you stepped in there, man. Yeah, yeah. I provided Demonstrated some
5: that you were, in fact, paying attention. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, no, thanks okay. for having us, and thanks for kind of doing this dual podcast. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I, mean,
3: I learned a lot, and then got the updates on the migration, and uh, I think we're about to see hopefully a very, very good peak in, in seasons yeah. everywhere that we maybe hadn't seen in couple years that's you know that's yep. at least consistently good you know everywhere yeah, yeah. run them uh,
5: run them ducks out of those states that have already closed their seasons that's, right. exactly. that's, that's the other thing that kind of exactly good, yeah. doesn't yeah. work that's in our back favor. to the pressure that's right yep
4: absolutely cool guys i appreciate it this has been awesome
5: thank you thank you
4: thanks y'all I'd like to thank the guys from BG Game Calls and the BG Waterfowl Podcast for joining us today. had a great conversation, more avian flu, hot topic type stuff, and some migration updates here. So I'm sure everyone will find that valuable. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Razor for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting Wetlands Conservation.